0: Hi, everybody. Whether you're from Pinelands Baptist Church or whether you're visiting with us uh, from elsewhere, it's a real privilege for us to be able to meet around God's Word today in this way. A special greeting to some folk from Nysner, who I believe listen in each week. We're glad that you're part of us. And thank you so much, Charlotte, for your particular greeting this past week. I heard a story of how Sir Lancelot came back from one of his campaigns and King Arthur called him into the throne room and asked him, what have you been doing? And Sir Lancelot replied, sire, I have been fighting your enemies on the eastern border and I have been fighting your enemies on the southern border. And King Arthur replied, but I don't have any enemies on my eastern or southern border. And Sir Lancelot replied, oh. Well, you do now. If you've lived longer than about two days on this planet, then you will have been hurt unjustly by someone. The hurt may have been something small, like a few spoken words, or it may have been something big, like divorce, or abuse, even murder. Their unjust treatment of you may have happened 30 years ago, or it might be happening right now. As God's chosen people, as his royal priesthood and holy nation, how are we to act when we are treated unjustly? Well, in the next section of Peter's letter, Peter addresses a group of people who were in exactly that situation. In fact, they were in a worse situation than you and I have ever found ourselves. The people that Peter addresses didn't have access to the police or the ccma or the courts or the public protector and yet let's have a look at what peter says first peter chapter 2 and verses 18 to 25 slaves submit yourselves to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate but also to those who are harsh For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last time we were in the book of First Peter, we looked at Peter's instructions on how we are to live in society. And now Peter moves on to address those who make up the basic building block of society, the household. Now, that might not seem immediately obvious to us as we read these verses, but in the ancient Roman Empire, households were made up of husbands and wives and children and slaves. And Peter will go on to address members of the family that are more familiar to us in the verses that lie ahead. Peter actually stands in a long tradition of writers who addressed instructions to households, In the ancient world, various writers wrote up instructions for the members of households, and these were known as household codes. Writers like Plato and Aristotle and Plutarch and Seneca all wrote these rules for households. And while they may have differed on the details, all of those writers believed that the household structure was divinely ordained, and was the fundamental basis for a strong, orderly, and prosperous society. In fact, foreigners and foreign religions were judged in large part by whether or not they complied with the expectations for household relationships. So, for example, the Egyptian Isis cult, Isis was an Egyptian goddess, was viewed as a threat to the Roman way of life because it permitted a woman authority over her husband. Uh, More on that in one of our future sermons. The lowest members of the household were the slaves. Most well-to-do families would have included at least one slave. It's estimated that slaves made up about a quarter of the population of the Roman Empire. And it wasn't only menial tasks which were performed by slaves. As the commentator William Barclay puts it, Doctors, teachers, musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards were slaves. In fact, all the work of Rome was done by slaves. Roman attitude was that there was no point in being master of the world and doing one's own work. Let the slaves do that, and let the citizens live in pampered idleness. The supply of slaves would never run out. So, slaves were often professional people, part of the family... And even loved and admired. But they had one thing in common. They were not free, and they had no rights. A slave was considered to be a piece of property and could be treated as such. Now, when we read these verses today, particularly in the light of the Black Lives Matter movement and the discussions around racism and colonialism and slavery, we immediately want to ask. Why didn't Peter and the other New Testament writers simply forbid slavery? Why not simply write, Thou shalt not have any slaves? Well, the answer is that they didn't live in a democracy. Christians weren't a majority. They didn't have any positions of power or influence. We do live in a democracy, and we should use all the tools that we have at our disposal to work for justice on behalf of the oppressed. Also, for Peter to directly challenge slavery would have been to undermine the very fabric of ancient society and would have given Christianity the reputation of being a subversive religion. And to try and get all Christian masters to free their slaves or all Christian slaves to throw off slavery would have been disastrous. As one writer puts it, to have encouraged the slaves to rise against their masters would have been the way to speedy disaster. There had been such revolts before, and they had always been quickly and savagely crushed. But if you look carefully at what Peter writes here, and also at some of the other New Testament writings, you will see that the Bible undermines slavery to such an extent that its eventual downfall was ensured. And we see that in this passage. There are two surprises in Peter's words here two things that he does in his household code, which went completely against the social norms of the time. Firstly, he addresses slaves directly. None of the other household codes of the time addressed slaves or wives directly, they were addressed through the head of the household, the husband. But Peter addresses slaves directly to show that they are people and not just possessions. He gives them equal status with everyone else in the congregation because what he says to slaves here, he says to everyone in chapter 3, finally all of you, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. He elevates slaves to the position of people with rights and choices and dignity. They have the same status as everyone else in the congregation. The second surprise in peter's words here is that he can speak about harsh treatment and unjust suffering there was no such thing in the roman world with regard to slaves aristotle wrote there can be no justice towards inanimate things indeed not even towards a horse or an ox nor yet towards a slave as a slave for master and slave have nothing in common A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Again, in pointing out that there can indeed be justice and injustice and harsh treatment in regard to slaves, Peter is giving to slaves the dignity of being human beings and not simply objects. And when you take Peter's words here, and Paul's words about there being neither slave nor free in Christ Jesus, when you read the little letter of Philemon in the New Testament, which is Paul's appeal to a slave owner whose slave has run away, you see that while they don't directly address the evil of slavery, the New Testament writings are subversibly equalising. They're a little bit like an arrowhead, lodged deeply in the flesh, that eventually works its way to the heart of slavery and ensures its death. Of course, some Christians were embarrassingly slow to recognise things in Scripture that undermine slavery. There are parts of Scripture that we are all embarrassingly slow to put into practice in our own lives. But I think it's important to remember that Christians were at the forefront of abolishing slavery. And to be honest, it is only the Christian religion that can undermine slavery and racism. It's very interesting in our modern society. People are speaking out about the legacy of slavery and colonialism and apartheid. They're speaking out about racism, and rightly so. But at the same time, they're arguing that they can do whatever they want to sexually. Do you see the disconnect there? If we can do whatever we want sexually because there are no rules and there are no morals and there is no God, we're just the products of the Big Bang and when we die there is nothingness, if that is so, then why is racism wrong? If it's just survival of the fittest, then what's wrong with colonialism? If you're prepared to say that racism is wrong, then you have to admit that there is a moral code out there. And a moral code leads to someone outside of our system. It leads to God. That's just a by-the-way paragraph, but I think it's a very important point in the moral mess our modern world finds itself in at the moment. So that's some of the background into the specific situation that Peter is addressing in these verses. But these verses have a broader application. As I said right at the beginning, They address the situation of unjust suffering, particularly in an environment which I cannot escape. Whether that's at work or school or even among our friends or even church members, someone has hurt us and we don't deserve it. What do we do? Well, there are four little phrases in these verses that give us practical things that we can do in the face of unjust suffering. The first thing we are to do when we are treated unfairly is to be conscious of God. Verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. Verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And Peter begins this section in verse 18 by saying, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, literally with all fear. Fear of whom? Their masters? No, remember in the verse just before this, verse 17, Paul says, Show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God. Slaves and you and me are to live in fear of God. We are to be conscious of God. We are to live out our lives before God. As one writer puts it, thinking about God, looking to God as a third party who is really present, taking God as seriously as we take the offense against us. There are two particular ways in which I can be conscious of God in times of unjust suffering. Firstly, I remind myself that I am God's slave. Remember, we looked at this in our last sermon on First Peter chapter 2, and verses 13 and 16. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. And remember, we saw that those two verses make sense backwards. Everyone in the world is a slave to something. When we live as God's slaves, we become truly free. But we don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. We use our freedom to freely serve others, which is hugely powerful. I don't submit or put up with bad behavior because I have to. I do so because I choose to, because I belong to God. There's all the difference in the world between those two mindsets. Secondly, being conscious of God in times of unjust suffering means remembering that Jesus became a slave. Peter is writing to slaves who, as we have seen, were on the lowest social rung of the time and who had no rights, and some of whom were being beaten unjustly by their masters. And he reminds them that Jesus voluntarily chose to put himself in their place. That means then that to be a slave who is unfairly beaten is actually to be in the highest position, because that is the position that the Son of God chose. Philippians chapter 2 Jesus we're in the exact position of being where Jesus has been. In times of unjust suffering, we're to be conscious of God. The second thing we're to do when we're treated unfairly is to remember our calling. Verse 21 To this you were called. Peter is not suggesting that we are called primarily to suffer. A little earlier in chapter 2, Peter speaks about us declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In chapter 5, he spoke about the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So the Christian calling is not to suffering itself. We are not masochists who seek out suffering. But at the same time, our calling is to patient endurance in suffering. Let me read the full verse from chapter 5 that I just quoted. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Our Christian calling is to patient endurance in the face of suffering. And this concept has two important implications. Firstly, it's vitally important to know that the Christian life includes suffering. If our calling is to patient endurance in suffering, then that clearly implies that there will be suffering. We're not to seek it out, but it will certainly find us. I love old hymns, as you may have guessed by now, but there's one hymn that I have surreptitiously shuffled to the bottom of our playlist. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away. All good so far. It was there by faith I received my sight. Still doing well. And now I am happy all the day. Hmm, not so much. (laughs) In John chapter 16, Jesus promised, In this world you will have trouble. As we have seen and will see in this letter, Christians are not exempt from suffering. Christians get sick. Christians die. Christians lose their jobs. Christians lose loved ones. Christians are not exempt from suffering. In fact, living as a Christian opens you up to all sorts of suffering that you wouldn't have if you weren't a follower of Jesus. That's what this whole letter of 1 Peter is about. Chapter 4. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Some Christians have never been told that the Christian life includes suffering, and so when it comes along, they're blown out of the water as Jesus warned in the parable of the sower. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Secondly, it's important to know that patient endurance in suffering is our Christian calling. It's part of the package. Patient endurance in the face of unjust suffering is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Which brings us to the third thing we are to do when we are treated unfairly, and that is to follow the example of Jesus. Verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The word example here is a lovely Greek word. It refers to those templates that children use for handwriting. I homeschooled our girls for one magical year here in Cape Town. But one of the parts of homeschooling that wasn't particularly magical was handwriting lessons. As part of the curriculum we used, every day the girls were given a piece of paper that had a sentence written out in dotted lettering, and they had to write over the pattern of those letters. One Bible commentator fleshes out the implications of this image for us. She writes... It suggests the closest of copies. English words such as example, model or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model, as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. Jesus Christ left us this pattern over which we are to trace out our lives in order that we might follow in his footsteps. This is a strong image associating the Christian's life with the life of Christ. For one cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off in any other direction than the direction he took. And his footsteps led to the cross through the grave and onward to glory peter goes on to describe this pattern for us in verses 22 and 23 by describing the things that jesus didn't do and the things that he did do in the face of unjust suffering firstly what jesus didn't do he committed no sin Just because we're suffering, and even suffering unjustly, doesn't give us permission to do things that God says are wrong. One seasoned pastor says, It seems to me a lot of people today, Christians included, justify their anger and their critical spirit by the wrongs that have been done to them. In other words, there are lots of people who, if you point out to them that they seem to be unduly angry or bitter or critical or slanderous of others, immediately tell you about how badly they've been treated or how they've been let down or how they've been hurt. There appears to be an automatic and deeply rooted sense that if I've been mistreated or let down or hurt, then the other person deserves to be shown up and brought to justice and paid back, and therefore I have the right to make sure that 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 happens, and I can use criticism or slander or put-downs or threats or grudges to make sure that they get their comeuppance. It's very easy but sinful to think to ourselves, well, he did that to me. That gives me permission to do anything else that I want to in return. And no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus didn't tell any lies or half truths in order to avoid unjust suffering. How many of us don't find ourselves shading the truth just to get out of deserved suffering? I'm sure it wasn't my car door that caused that scratch on your car. I'm pretty sure I wasn't doing any more than 65 kilometers an hour, officer. Of course those genes don't make you look fat, dear. We sometimes shade the truth to avoid deserved suffering. How much greater the temptation to shade the truth to get out of suffering that is undeserved. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. A little bit later in chapter 3, Peter will tell us, Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. You see, what people don't realize is that when we retaliate, we become just as ugly as the person who did us the original wrong. When he suffered, he made no threats. Think of two little boys fighting in the playground and the one saying, I'll get you for this. Often it's an empty threat. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, though, just before his arrest and trial and execution, Jesus had said to Peter, who had retaliated with his sword and cut off the ear of one of the arresting officers, Jesus said, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus could have threatened Pilate and Herod and the soldiers with that threat, which would have been a genuine threat, but he chose not to. So if that's what Jesus did not do, what did he do? Verse 23, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The New International Version is not our best translation here because actually the word himself is not in the text. The text literally says that Jesus simply trusted or handed over to him who judges justly. He handed the whole situation over to God, including himself and those who were abusing him. Jesus didn't take things into his own hands. Instead, he entrusted the situation into God's hands. And in those times when we are treated unfairly, we're called to do the same. And we do that primarily through prayer. Entrusting ourselves into God's hands is indeed an act of trust. Instead of taking matters into my own hands and plotting and planning and thinking, I place the situation into God's hands and ask Him to sort it out. Now, quite how we put divine sovereignty and human responsibility together here can be a bit fuzzy. I'm not suggesting that we never do anything. We'll see in one of our next sermons that if you are a wife and your husband is hitting you, you need to get out of the house and tell someone. Peter's words here don't mean that I never apply for a transfer for a new job. Remember, Peter, though, is writing to people who had no control whatsoever over their circumstances. Sometimes we do have options. However, we often jump to action and planning and worry before we jump to prayer, and many times we jump to retaliation and insult and sin before we jump to prayer, I came across a wonderful prayer by Richard Foster this week. We're working through that book on prayer on the WhatsApp group, and I'm a few prayers ahead of you, so you'll get it in a few weeks' time. Richard Foster prayed, "O oh Lord, I really want to be in control." No, I need to be in control. That's it, isn't it? I'm afraid to give up control, afraid of what might happen. Heal my fear, Lord. How good of you to reveal my blind spots, even in the midst of my stumbling attempts to pray. Thank you. But now what do I do? How do I give up control? Jesus, please teach me your way of relinquishment. Just to say that entrusting the situation into God's hands in prayer means that we can still be honest and open with God. This explains something that you may have noticed in the book of Psalms. Every now and again you read a lovely psalm in the Bible and halfway through the psalmist is asking God to strike his enemies on the jaw or destroy his enemies. Or Psalm 109, make his enemy's wife a widow and his mother childless. It's pretty grim reading. Until you realize that the psalmists are practicing this principle of entrusting themselves to him who judges justly. They're not taking matters into their own hands. They're telling God what they would like to see happen. Doesn't mean that God will answer their prayers. But they're pouring out their anger and their frustration and despair to God. And they are trusting, in the words of Abraham in Genesis 18, that the judge of all the earth will do right. We can pray that our enemies get what they deserve from God, but perhaps it would be wise to remember that if we all got what we deserve from God, there would be none of us left. When we find ourselves on the receiving end of unjust suffering, we are to follow the example of Jesus. We might say, This is too hard. I can't do this. And we're right. We can't. In and of ourselves, we will never be able to do what Jesus did on our own. Which leads us to the fourth thing that we are to do when we are treated unfairly. We are to rest in our Redeemer's grace. In verse 21, Peter actually makes two important points. He says, Christ set an example... And he says, Christ suffered for you. And in verse 24, Peter elaborates what he means by that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The reason that Jesus died was precisely to give us new birth that allows us to die to sin, revenge, retaliation, gossip, slander, insult and live to righteousness. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who insult you. He died so that, in order that, to give us the power that, We might die to ungodly responses to injustice and live to righteous responses. We need to come back to these verses next time because Peter's picture of salvation here is rich and deep and profound. But just to say that intently looking at the cross of Jesus where he died for us can radically change my perception of the injustice that I experience I remember that I have been forgiven so much, that I have committed horrible injustices in my own life for which Jesus has forgiven me, and that perhaps I still need to ask forgiveness for from others and make reparation too. I remember that my worth as a person doesn't rest on the opinion of others, that when I am insulted, When I'm bullied on social media, when I'm falsely accused, when people say all sorts of evil things against me, when when they've misunderstood me and misquoted me and twisted my words, it doesn't matter because Christ is my righteousness. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews encourages us to do in chapter 12, where he says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Spend some time meditating on the gospel accounts of Jesus' trial and punishment and execution. Spend some time meditating on some of the passages that reflect on all that Jesus did for us on the cross. Romans chapter 8, Philippians chapter 2. Listen prayerfully to some hymns that celebrate the cross. Oh, to see the dawn, when I survey the wondrous cross, come and see the King of love the price is paid, how deep the Father's love for us. All these and many more are beautiful poetic reflections on the cross with great tunes that can place the cross firmly in our hearts and minds. When we're treated unfairly, we rest in our Redeemer's grace and our fresh love for Him displaces the anger and the bitterness and the resentment that we might feel towards others. There's just one other little phrase that we need to consider as we conclude our study today. In verse 19, Peter says, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because he is conscious of God. The word commendable here is actually the word grace. Peter literally says, if a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God, that is grace. As Pastor Chris Wright puts it, to endure unjust suffering takes grace, reflects grace, and finds grace in God's eyes. That doesn't mean that God enjoys seeing people suffer unjustly. It also doesn't mean that we don't work for justice for others, even while we are suffering unjustly ourselves. But it does mean that to follow Jesus in his example of patient endurance of suffering is not just a command to obey, but a grace to be experienced. In chapter 4 and verse 14, Peter says, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The Bible scholar Derek Tidball writes in one of his books, As disciples of Jesus, we must follow where he leads, and we should not be surprised if we arrive at a cross at some time or another. When we do, may God grant us the courage and strength to remain conscious of God, to remember our calling, to follow in his steps, to rest in his grace, knowing that when we follow him in this or in anything else he has commanded us, we are blessed. Amen.